As we learned last week, Jeremiah 29 contains a small eschatological projection in verses 10 to 14, which becomes the prelude to a large eschatological overture in chapters 30 to 33. The fact that chapter 29 also contains an interface between the people of God and the Gentiles testifies to the expanding progress of the redemptive historical plan of God when the fullness of time arrives and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will embrace Jew and Gentile alike. Remember, we emphasize this transition, which is revealed in chapter 29, when Israel is going into captivity amongst the Gentiles as an anticipation of that transition, which the church will experience as the gospel goes into the Gentile nations, and there is no longer Jew or Greek. All right, this pattern, which we are anticipating here, In Jeremiah 29, this pattern of the dispersion of God's people in captivity in Babylon, Jeremiah 29, a pattern in which Babylon becomes the instrument of God's wrath in 586 B.C., this pattern will be replayed at the end of the book of Jeremiah in chapters 46 to 51, when Babylon will be the object of God's wrath and the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar will be destroyed as the kingdom of Judah was before it. In both these cases, God the Lord preserves a remnant according to the election of grace and restores them to his covenant blessings, whether they sojourn in Babylon in Judah, or in the uttermost parts of the earth. There's your anticipation of the final eschatological transition. The people of God from all nations in the uttermost parts of the world. Now, tonight, we want to examine this rich, profound amplification of Jeremiah's eschatology in chapters 30 to 33. An eschatology which forms the hinge point of this book, in my opinion. That, as Judah journeys from destruction to exile to restoration, so chapters 30 to 33 anticipate the journey of restoration from exile and to the destruction of the oppressive Gentile nations. I've already indicated chapters 46 to 51 will testify to that. In other words, the wrath of God descending on a disobedient people is eschatologically transformed by his restoring grace, with his wrath concomitantly descending on the enemies of his people. We will begin our exploration this evening of this core eschatological hinge point of the book of Jeremiah with chapters 30 and 31. We will complete it by unpacking chapters 32 and 33 next week. 
Now, having set the stage for the central importance of this hinge point of the book of Jeremiah, these four chapters, let's take a look at the common language and imagery, which is uh, which is replete uh, in this uh, material, uh, examining a few specific uh, terms and images uh, which are common, as I say, common to Jeremiah's projected eschatological era, common to all the elect people of God, whether they are Old Testament or New Testament believers alike, common to us. We bask in these common elements which are revealed to us here in these marvelous chapters. We relish uh, the uh, common benefit that we receive from this vocabulary and the revelation of God's kindly, loving, benevolent, gracious disposition to sinners such as we are. We are refreshed by this language. These chapters are chapters to feed your soul and to stir your heart because the language of these chapters contains imagery and vocabulary which is common to your need, your experience, and your part in the plan of redemption in God's providence and care. All right, now, with that in mind, uh, let's take a look at some of this language which is common to Jeremiah's era, common to the projection of Jeremiah's eschatology, and common to our Christian era in the fullness of time. Begin with verse 7 of chapter 30, which is also like verse 10 and 11 of that chapter, and verse 7 of chapter 31. There is a difference in verse 11 of 31. I'll note that. But in verse 7 of chapter 30, you will notice the word, Save, And that word uh, repeats itself in uh, the rest of those verses except for uh, verse 11 of 31. <clears throat> Salvation, which is a word that you can write into the first blank there uh, opposite uh, verse 11. The salvation of the Lord is common to us as it was common to Isaiah's day or Jeremiah's day as it was common to the day of uh, any believer in any era of the history of redemption. This word salvation in this context uh, means to be rescued from the enemy. Jeremiah specifically focuses on that uh, redemption or that salvation in which God protects his people from their enemies. Now, in verse 11 of chapter 31, he uses two synonyms. He uses the word ransomed and redeemed. Now, they're synonyms for salvation. They mean the same thing. But they mean the same thing in a slightly different nuance. For instance, the word ransomed means to be set free, particularly to be set free from bondage. The word redeemed means to be released, but to be released by the paying of a debt, paying what is owed. So this language is common to us as it is common to Jeremiah's own experience common to the experience of believers in every era of the history of redemption. Believers, those who have been touched by the grace of God, are the redeemed of the Lord. They are the ransomed of the Most High. They are saved from the uttermost parts of the earth. This is language that belongs to us. It belongs to you. It belongs to all those who belong to God. This is wonderful language 
and it, it reverberates in our hearts with the sense of our own being folded into its drama and reality. Now, the next word is prominently, prominent in verse 12 of chapter 31. If you want to glance quickly at that verse, you will notice that the word joy jumps out at you from that passage. And in those other uh, verses that I've listed there, the term joy or rejoicing is also uh, frequently listed. So you can write the word joy or rejoicing there in that blank. Uh, This is common to the blessings of not only this eschatological age that Jeremiah is projecting, but it is common to any age of salvation and redemption in which the ransomed of the Lord rejoice at his goodness to them. And as they rejoice, verse 7 of chapter 31, they sing. Do you not sing? Do you not sing not only on Sunday, but do you not sing to yourself? Do you not sing the hymns and psalms of the faith? Do you not, do you not sing occasionally because you rejoice in the Lord? And the way that you give expression to that is with the song of your voice. <clears throat> Even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, you make a joyful noise. God doesn't care, and I don't care who's standing next to you, whether they care or not. Sing anyway. The Lord loves a cheerful noise. All right, so this singing is common to all the people in all the ages of the history of redemption. The church, the synagogue, the temple, they have sung. That is the response of the people of God to his goodness. So uh, the blank to fill in there, the word sing or singing is appropriate. Now, in verse 3 of chapter 30, we actually have the motif which forms the inclusio around this unit. You will notice on the second page of your outline that I did not begin with the structure of this uh, section. But if you'll look at number A on the second page, you'll see the inclusio uh, around this whole unit, this whole four-chapter unit. It is the phrase, restore the captivity, which initiates the eschatological projection, and it concludes the eschatological projection. So we have a perfect bracketed or framework inclusio around this unit, and in 30, verse 3, we see it for the first time, in which God indicates that he's going to restore the captivity or return his people by his saving grace. Now, this restoration, this notice of being, uh, this notion of being returned or restored to the Lord is an element of the grace of salvation. God restores to his free and undeserved favor those who are outside of that favor by nature or outside of that favor by judgment or chastisement. So this language of restoration, this language of being restored to God's favor, is language which reverberates in common with all believers through all the ages. It is a language of invitation to return to the Lord, to come to him. He will not turn you away. Come to him and be restored to his favor and kindness. This is exactly what has happened to uh, Israel with respect to the return from the Babylonian captivity. So restoration and return uh, can fill in that line opposite 31.8. Then in chapter 31, verse 22, 
He uses a word, a phrase that occurs only once in the Old Testament. It's a hapax. It occurs once and only. And it is the term a new thing. The Lord has created a new thing. Now, the imagery there is somewhat difficult to uh, understand, so uh, we're going to set aside the particular specifics of the imagery. It's the new thing that I want to uh, focus on, because in this eschatological projection, the new thing is the era in which all things will be made new. Even something as peculiar as what he suggests is pointed out in that particular verse, which is, as I understand, very difficult to understand because the Hebrew words are quite complicated. But the new thing is that new dimension of God's own redeeming, saving, gracious act, his covenant mercy. It's breaking into history. It is what is enjoyed, and it it is that in which the people of God participate and identify, whether they are Old Testament believers, whether they are New Testament believers, whether they are believers of the end of the age. They all experience these new things that are breaking in. Even in the Old Testament, there is a new thing breaking in. Jeremiah's eschatological new thing, as we will see, is something that has the flavor of eternity to it. So the new thing is that which is indicated in verse 22 of chapter 31. Now in verse 2 of chapter 31, going backwards a bit, The Lord says, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. People who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. What's he talking about there? Is he talking about something that had happened? Is he talking about an event? Or is he talking about something that is yet in front of the people of God? What do you think? Ben, what do you think? Art, what's he talking about? Talking about all three? Do you want to begin with? Well, I think of uh, rescuing the Israelites from Egypt. Very good. Okay. In fact, I think that's exactly what he's thinking of. But as he thinks about that Exodus imagery, he also projects a new Exodus. In other words, there is going to be a new uh, release from bondage. Uh, even as you can say that the return from the Babylonian captivity is, in a sense, a new exodus, although it is not the exodus that uh, Jeremiah is specifically projecting here. The new exodus for the eschatological people of God is an exodus which will once and for all perfect and complete the exodus which was such a miserable failure under Moses. And when was that perfected and completed? When was that new exodus for the people of God completed and perfected? Did not Jesus go down into Egypt? Did not Jesus come up out of Egypt? Did not Jesus go into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights as Israel was 40 years in the wilderness? Did not Jesus then cross over the waters? Did not Jesus pass through the waters of baptism? Did not Jesus go up to the mountain? Did he not go up to the mountain and there give the law of the kingdom of heaven? In other words, this new Exodus projection... Jeremiah anticipates and prophesies is supremely fulfilled in Christ's own exodus. He relives the exodus. He goes through the paradigm himself. Why does he do it? In order to complete it, in order to fulfill it, in order to perfect it, 
in order to make it an exodus which is finished once and for all. And in him, all those that belong to him have undergone that eschatological exodus. They have eschatologically been brought up out of Egypt, out of bondage. They have been brought through the waters, which divides the old from the new. They have been brought through the wilderness because he has withstood the enemy in the desert. And they have been taken to the mount of his uh, display and, and revelation. They have been taken to the mountain in which the kingdom of heaven is displayed and taught. And the morals, the ethics, the character, the life of the kingdom of heaven is revealed. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the life of the eschatological kingdom. That's what it is to live in the kingdom of God. Forever. You can't wish anybody dead, let alone pull the trigger. You can't wish anybody seduced, let alone perform the act. You can't do it. You're in heaven. You can't do it. This is what it's like to be in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying. All right, so this anticipation here in Jeremiah is taking us all the way to Christ, who is the fulfiller of this Exodus imagery. All right, uh, verse 27. In 3127, the prophet talks about Israel and Judah becoming one. A reunion of the northern and southern kingdoms of Palestine. One body, one people of God. Not Israelite, not Judahite, but one people of God. So that we are here in the common language of the fact that there is one people of God. In the Old Testament, it was the Jews. In the New Testament, it is neither Jew nor Greek. The one people of God is one body in Christ Jesus. It has always been the same. In other words, Judaism was not itself distinctive in the Old Testament era. It was simply a way of expressing the people of God in Christ by way of anticipation, by way of reference to that Old Testament definition and identification. There is nothing peculiar then about Judaism. It is only that element of the people of God which was for that era in the history of redemption. Once that era was over then that people of God became the people of the nations, the believers in Christ. They are the true seed of Abraham. There is no longer any Israel after the flesh. Jeremiah is projecting that. We belong to that. You know that. We we are not, according to the flesh, uh, Jews. We are Gentiles. But even that is not distinctive of us. We are the people of God of the end of the age. All right, so the reunion of Israel and Judah is an anticipation of this uh, common one body in Christ as it folds, unfolds itself through the history of redemption. And finally, in verse 34, the last common element in which we revel is in, verse, uh, in chapter 31, 34, the forgiveness of sins. What is common to the people of God? Whether it is the people of God in the age of Noah, whether it's the people of God in the age of Abraham, whether it's the people of God in the age of Moses, whether it's the people of God in the age of the judges or David or the prophets, whether it's the people of God after the coming of Christ, what is common to them all? It is that their sins have been forgiven. They have been washed whiter than snow in the blood of the Lamb of God, 
who has been slain from the foundation of the world. These elements then are common to your own participation and identification in the language of the history of redemption, the language of this passage, the eschatological drama which is being described here. This is common to you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as was common to Abraham who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, so these are common elements. Now, let's take a look at some different types of language. Let's begin with the temporal features of this prophetic section of Jeremiah. What is a temporal feature? What does the word temporal mean? In time, yes, in time. Something that occurs in time. All right, now, in verse 3 of chapter 30, we referred to this already as the opening of the inclusio, which brackets this whole unit, 30 to 33. God says he's going to bring back his people or return their captivity to the land. The temporal feature there is, did it happen in time? Ben, you're nodding your head. What was the date? That's that's five, that's good. 538 actually, but 539 marks the uh, what what's that date mark? All right, let me ask a question this way. Who allows them to go back? Cyrus, Cyrus and who is he? He is the king of Persia. And what does the king of Persia have to do with Babylon? He succeeded Babylon. He succeeded Babylon. What else did he do to Babylon? He, he conquered it. He destroyed it, but not with blood and sword because it actually was a fairly peaceful takeover. All right, so Cyrus the Great, 539 B.C., at the fifth chapter of Daniel, Belshazzar's feast, takes over the nation of Babylon from its corruption, walks into the city, and takes over a whole empire so that the Persians now control the former Babylonian Empire in 539. And one of the first things that he does is he issues a decree that the Jews may go back to their nation. Okay, That decree was fulfilled about a year later, probably 538. And who led them back? Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is actually almost 100 years later. He comes back in 457, 448, 457-7, rather. No, Ezra is 445. Nehemiah is 457. It is Zerubbabel. It is Zerubbabel, and who else? Who is the high priest? No, not Shealtiel, it's Joshua or Jeshua. So there are two main leaders. What's Zerubbabel's role? What's his position? Why is he the leader? Because he's the appointed governor. Cyrus appoints him governor of the province of Yahudi, as it's called, or Yehuda. All right. And uh, Jeshua or Joshua, high priest, accompanies him. All right. Now. This Persian period is the period of Ezra and Nehemiah, as some of you pointed out. 
It's also the period of what other Old Testament book? Book of Esther, okay? It's also the, the period of what other Old Testament prophetic books? Marge, go ahead. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Very good. So we have actually six Old Testament books which are set in this Persian period. In other words, they are all in the context of the post-exilic era, after the exile, after the Babylonian captivity. So this temporal feature of being restored to the land was actually accomplished. It was fulfilled in time after 538 B.C. All right, verse 8 of chapter 30. God says, you will not be slaves to strangers any longer. Was that fulfilled in time? They were not slaves to Babylon after 538. They were released from their bondage. They were never really slaves to Persia, even though they were subject to them. In other words, Persia ruled them, but they didn't place them in a kind of captivity and bondage. They dealt with them uh, very fairly. So this was fulfilled in time. Verse 11 of chapter 30. I am with you. What kind of a promise is that? I am with you. It's the Emmanuel promise. It's the Emmanuel promise and assurance that God would be with them in bringing them back. That was fulfilled in time. But notice the poignancy of that revelation of God. I am with you. Okay? You see what's behind that. This is a very precious promise. When Jesus is born, he's called Emmanuel because he is God with us. I am with you in my son. Now, in verse 16 of chapter 30, God indicates that all those who plundered you shall be for plunder. Was that fulfilled in time? Chapters 46 to 51 will actually project that uh, accomplishment in time. Jeremiah is going to indicate how God is going to deal with those nations that persecuted, plundered, and oppressed Judah. All the way from Assyria to Babylon to Persia to Greece and to Rome. God will deal with them in due time. So this projection of uh, this eschatological portion was uh, accomplished temporally. Now, 3018 and 3138 to 40 uh, are referring to the same thing. Let's take a look at that 18th verse of chapter 30. I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob, and the city shall be rebuilt on its ruin. What city is he talking about? Jerusalem. It is the same in chapter 31, verses 38 to 40. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Did that occur in time? It did occur in time. That is correct. They came back in 538 B.C. One of the first things they did was they laid the foundation of the temple. The former temple of Solomon had been destroyed and leveled, been reduced to ashes by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. And so they laid the foundation 
of a new temple, a second temple on the previous spot where Solomon's temple had stood. And yet, having laid the foundation about 538, 37, they stopped. That's all they did until the year 520, until 17 years later. And how did they get started again? Marge, how did they get started again? Haggai and Zechariah came and told them, what do you mean building houses of cedar for yourself? Well, the house of the Lord lies in ruins. So in 520 B.C., Haggai and Zechariah stirred them up to finish the temple. It took them four years. They completed it in 516 B.C. and rededicated it. All right, so that's there's your paradigm for the place of Haggai and Zechariah, uh, basically in the uh, in the history of this uh, re- restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem, particularly the temple. <clears throat> now, two other temporal features in 31:5 and 31:24. In 31:5, God says, <clears throat> "You will plant vineyards." Did it happen in time? Did they plant vineyards in Palestine after they came back from the Babylonian exile? Yes, they did. And in verse 24. <clears throat> Farmers and flocks will dwell in Judah. Is that true? Did farmers and flocks and herdsmen and so on, did they begin to do what people do in an agricultural economy, in an agrarian economy? Yes, they did. So that in time, these things were accomplished and occurred in history. Any questions about that language? Scott? Stick with me. (laughs) You're anticipating me, which is very good. Isn't it wonderful to have a man that thinks very much like you do, uh, particularly if he's on your faculty? (laughs) I love him like a brother. Okay, now, um, I'm stepping you through this just in the way that Scott is projecting because I want you to understand the significance of this prophetic language. I want you to understand the profundity of this eschatological language. So the next step is to take a look at the non-temporal feature. Now, what's non-temporal mean? If temporal means in time, what's non-temporal mean? Susan, can you guess that one? Not in time. Very good. That, fill in the blanks. Not in time. <laughs> All right, now, not in the time of the restoration, okay? That's what we mean here. So, so we're, we're keeping in mind that this is language which is actually not reflected in the 538 B.C. return. And the first verse we want to look at is at verse 9 of chapter 30, where the Lord says, or what Jeremiah says from the Lord, that they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Did that happen in 538 B.C.? Who was the ruler? Was it David? It was Zerubbabel. Was he a king? No, he was a governor. Was there any descendant of David who was going to sit on the throne of Judah after 538 B.C.? Ever. All the way down to the time of Christ. Was there a Davidite? Was there a descendant of the house of David sitting on on the throne as king of Judah? 
No, there was not. All right, so here you see we have a promise which is non-temporal in the sense it was not accomplished in 538 or following. Or ever after that, for that matter, there's never been a Davidite on a throne in Jerusalem since 586 B.C. All right, verse 10, the very next verse. Do not be dismayed. I will save you from afar. No one will make Israel afraid. Did Israel never fear? Did the children of Judah, after coming back to Jerusalem, never fear again? They're, well, we'll leave, we'll leave outside Israel right now, because I don't believe that has any continuity with Old Testament Israel. But at any rate, uh, when they first came back, they were never free. And that's, that's true in a sense. In fact, they were probably as free when they first came back as they ever were. But even when they first came back, who harassed them? And who were the people around them in particular that harassed them? The Samaritans, correct. The Samaritans, this is one of the reasons there was a great hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And one of the reasons you have the parable of the Good Samaritan in the New Testament, because of this long simmering hostility. It's all six centuries old by the time Jesus is born, in which they, they harassed the Jews as they came back to rebuild Jerusalem. And so they lived in fear. That's one of the reasons Nehemiah was sent back, to rebuild the walls so that they would have some protection. Obviously, when the Greeks came, they lived in fear. When the Ptolemies and the Seleucids went crisscrossing against Palestine for over 100 years with six civil wars. That's prophesied in Daniel 11. When all that happened, the Jews lived in fear. And do you think that they were living in peace when when the Romans came? No. What happened in 70 A.D.? Did the Jews live in fear? Actually, that 70 A.D. was the end of a four-year campaign to destroy Israel. 66 A.D. was the beginning of that war. It took the Romans four years to reduce Israel to dust. Did the Jews fear? They feared. All right, so this is a promise which is outside the time of the Restoration. All right, chapter 30, verse 21. This is an interesting passage for what it indicates. A ruler shall come forth from their midst. I will bring him near. He shall approach me. Approach me where? I shall bring him near. Approach me. Near where? Right in front of God's glory throne. Notice the next line. Who would dare to risk his life to approach me? If you see God, you will surely die. Who would risk his life to come near to the glory presence of the Lord? And yet God says, I will bring this ruler out of your midst near unto me, and he will approach my glory presence and not be incinerated. Did that happen in 538 B.C.? Or any time afterwards? No, it did not. All right, so we have language here which does not pertain to that uh, era of uh, 538 and following. Now, verse 5 of chapter 31. They're going to plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. 
What was Samaria? Why does it appear here in Jeremiah's prophecy? Art? Well, you just said that uh, they're traditional enemies of the Jews. What had happened to Samaria? Did Babylon do anything to Samaria? It was the Assyrians, yes. <clears throat> what did they do, Ben? How many of them? How many tribes? Ten tribes of northern of the northern kingdom. <clears throat> uh, Samaria was the capital of that nation. The Assyrians destroyed it in what year? 722 B.C. and carried those ten tribes away into captivity. Here, Jeremiah projects that they're going to plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. He is projecting a restoration of the ten tribes. He's projecting a restoration of the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. Did that occur in time? Did the ten tribes ever come back? Good, I don't see that there are any British Israelite proponents out here. I'm very happy to hear that because that's ultimately a heresy. The ten tribes have been swallowed up and their gene pool is immersed in the nation. So they're never going to be gathered in. They're not hiding in some jungle in Vietnam. They didn't come to Central America in boats either. So forget the ten tribes. It's not going to happen. Now, verse 22 repeats the same theme. Chapter 31, verse uh, 22. Yes, it actually should be 21, I'm sorry. Uh, Virgin Israel is going to return to her cities. It's the same motif. Once again, a non-temporal feature. Israel did not, the nation of Israel did not come back from the Assyrian captivity to rebuild her cities. All right, now that takes us over to verse 30. Verse 31, actually, of chapter 31. The Lord says he's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Now, the old covenant that he mentions here was a covenant that he made with they brought when he brought them out of Egypt, referring to a specific time and event. When was this new covenant made? 538? Where was it made? When was it made? Where was it made? Who was the mediator of it? Christ Christ is the mediator of it. All right? Uh, That is correct, but that fulfillment is not in the temporal arena of 538 and following. In other words, there's no reprising, there's no replay of a place on a mountain or in a, in a location where this uh, new covenant is sealed, etc., by, uh, by a post-exilic covenant mediator. So we have to look elsewhere for the accomplishment of this covenant, new covenant promise. Verse 33, I will put my law in their heart. 
In 538, did God write His law on their heart? Then why did they disobey it? By taking foreign wives. And at the end of the book of Ezra, they had to divorce them. Why is Malachi uh, crying about the frequency of divorce in Israel and Judah in his own day, which is about 400 B.C.? In other words, it's rampant. Divorce and remarriage, divorce and marrying for some other reason is rampant. Violation of the law of God is common. The law wasn't written on their heart, 538 B.C. and afterwards. This is a non-temporal projection. They shall all know me, verse 34. Did all Israel know God in 538? No, they did not. I will remember their sins no more. Did God forget Israel's sins in 538 and following? No, he did not, or there would never have been a 70 A.D. There would never have been a Roman destruction of Jerusalem. And finally, the last two, 31, 36 to 37. In those two verses, notice what the Lord projects. Israel will be as permanent to me as the heavens and the earth. Israel will be as abiding in my sight as the heavens and the earth. Did that happen in 538 B.C.? Did it happen in 70 A.D.? Or in 70 A.D. did God ratify his decision to cut off unbelieving Israel and to send his gracious gospel to the world. That's a rhetorical question. Right, and finally, verses 38 to 40 in chapter 31, we've already pointed out that this verse talks about Jerusalem being rebuilt in verse 38. How will it be rebuilt? Notice verse 40. It will be rebuilt holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Was Jerusalem in 520, 516 B.C., was Jerusalem holy to the Lord? Was Jerusalem in 70 A.D. holy to the Lord? That language is not accomplished in the time of 538 B.C. and following. All right, that brings us to the third type of language, which we want to look at, namely the language which presents the eternity feature of Jeremiah's eschatological projection. And uh, I know that you need uh, uh, some oxygen and you need to stretch your legs and you need something to fortify you for round two. So we'll take a break and return in fünf Minuten. Now, the last element of uh, this kind of progressive discussion from the temporal vocabulary and imagery to the non-temporal is the eternity feature. 
Now, this feature is outside of time and space. So when I say that, I don't want you to think that it does not penetrate or intrude itself or enter time and space. However, its reality is in that dimension which is eternal. And at virtually every point of the vocabulary in these verses that we will note, the Hebrew word for eternal, olam, or to eternity, olam, is found in the text. So let's begin with verse 3 of chapter 31. where we read these very precious words. I, the Lord, have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. This love is eternal. The eternity feature of the love in this eschatological projection, which is anticipated and prophesied, For the future people of God, this love is an everlasting love, which means that it's beyond time. So though it may arrive or come into time, it is timeless. That's what the Hebrew term olam means. I will love you to eternity. That means that there is no temporal arena which can satisfy this verse and this part of the prophecy. There's no dimension in time and space which can exhaust this language. This language can only be exhausted in a dimension which is as olam as God himself. You understand then why you cannot come to this prophecy of Jeremiah and then project a thousand year millennium on the earth as if that will be the time of God's fulfillment of his everlasting love. A thousand years is not everlasting. A thousand years is temporal. A thousand years will come to an end in time and in space. Therefore, there is no way a millennium can do justice to this language, which is the fundamental reason that premillennialism, whether it's pre-trib or post-trib, whether it's dispensational or sweet pre-mill, historic pre-mill, is the reason it's wrong. It is not biblical. It cannot do justice to the language of the prophets when we read words, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Would you want to sit in a thousand-year period and know that at the end of that period God didn't love you anymore? Or do you want to sit in a place where he will love you today, tomorrow, and forever, and forever, and forever, and forever, and it will never end? Not in a thousand years, not in a billion years. Which would you prefer? Good amillennialists are ye all. But you understand why. Look at the text. It is this feature of the text. 
This is the inspired word of God. I didn't invent it. It's there. It's on the page in front of you. And no earthly arena, no earthly dimension can do justice to this language. It exceeds heaven and earth as God himself exceeds heaven and earth. I've loved you with a love which will bring you into my everlasting arena where you will never be unloved, not in time or space or eternity. Now, I don't claim originality for the observation of this. This is a fundamental contribution of Gerhardus Voss to the history of the interpretation of the Bible. His observation that the prophets focus upon this eternity feature of the revelation that God gives them for the eschatological future and no place in this world No place on this earth can satisfy that eternity feature. It is impossible. So you take the word of God, inspired as it is, and you take eternity with it. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is far better than a millennium, a temporal millennium. So keep this in mind as you read the prophets. Look for this language. Look for this eternity language in the prophets. And that's how you will understand that the Old Testament prophets were projecting exactly what the New Testament apostles said they were projecting when they used their prophecies to talk about the kingdom of heaven. An eternal, an eternal, everlasting kingdom that the prophets had projected. All right, this is the first time we see the language here. Second time is in verse 12 of chapter 31. They shall never languish again. Now, the Hebrew here is literally, they shall languish no more. What does it mean to languish? It means to be deprived of something. It means to be in want. It means to lack something. Well, what's the opposite of languishing? If you never languish, what does that mean? It means God is going to abundantly supply your needs, your wants. He will be all-sufficient and will provide an all-sufficiency. Notice there will be no more want, no more lack, no more languishing. That is an eternal reality. And there is no place in this world where you will have no more want. You will always have want. You will want another drink of water. You will not want another, you will want another bite of food. You will not want another night of rest. You will want a number of things which are essential to your physical well-being. But this verse promises you a time in which you will never want, never languish. You will never have anything insufficient. You will never have any need. There is no time or dimension in this world that can supply that to you. All 
utopian elitist Democrats notwithstanding who think they can create a perfect world on the earth. Not just them, any political system, communism, socialism, any system that thinks that it can create a heaven on earth is impossible because of the sinfulness of the human heart. It will not happen. It cannot happen in such an arena. This kind of language is only possible in an arena where there is no lack or want, where there is all sufficiency, eternal sufficiency. Verse 40. In this verse, we notice the very last word in verse 40. Jerusalem will not only be holy to the Lord, which as we observed did not occur in 538 or in 70 AD, Jerusalem will not be overthrown anymore forever. Olam in Hebrew, Jerusalem will not be overthrown to eternity. Even the millennial Jerusalem of a thousand years, according to the premillennialist scheme, even that Jerusalem will be destroyed. It is not an eternal Jerusalem. This Jerusalem of the prophet Jeremiah is a forever Jerusalem. Notice, he says it. It's in the text. Unto eternity. The eternity feature then cannot be satisfied by a temporal millennial thousand years in Jerusalem with Jesus sitting on a throne. Cannot happen. Impossible. Cannot fulfill the language of the prophet. All right, now, moving beyond chapter 31 for the first time, 30 and 31. I'm cheating a little bit. Let's go into chapter 32. And let's notice verse 39 of chapter 32, where God says that the restored people will fear God always. The Hebrew word for always is literally all the days. Again, it is another eternity uh, feature. Did the returning Jews fear God always? Did the Jews of 70 AD fear God always? Do the Jews of today fear God always? Do you realize that the highest rate of atheism in the world is in Israel? Most of the people in Israel do not believe in a personal God. If you know anything about modern Judaism, they don't believe that God is a person. Their religion is their ancestry. Their religion is their bloodline. Their religion is their tradition. Their religion is their family. You watch these movies on the Hallmark Channel where they do movies about Jews, and it's all about family. It's all about tradition. That's absolutely right. Judaism, modern-day Judaism, except for Hasidic, for very conservative Orthodox Judaism, does not believe that God is a person. God is a Jewish God of tradition. And they don't believe in him. More than 90% of Palestine, Israel-Palestine, is atheistic. That's a horrific statistic. It's even higher than Washington. 
All right. Which Washington? <laughs> Both. <laughs> All right. Verse 40 of chapter 32. I will make an everlasting covenant. Right now, this is a continuation of the new covenant that we saw in chapter 31. But here, for the only time in the Old Testament, the covenant is called everlasting. Once again, the Hebrew here is olam. It is an eternal covenant. <clears throat> Was that the covenant that God made when they came back to Jerusalem after the 70 years captivity? No, it was not. There is no covenant in time that has been made that qualifies with this vocabulary, save the covenant that has been made in the blood of Jesus Christ. All right, verse 11 of chapter 33. This picks up on a motif that we saw in verse 3 of chapter 31. God's loving kindness is everlasting. The Hebrew here is luk olam, means to eternity. God's loving kindness is never ending. That kind of love cannot be satisfied in a temporal arena. It can be enjoyed in a temporal arena, but it cannot be exhausted in a temporal arena because a temporal arena will come to an end. Time and space will end. This prophecy says that that loving kindness of God will never end. We therefore are driven to a dimension in which there is an endless, eternal, never-ending loving kindness of God because he said so to his prophet Jeremiah. Verse 17 of chapter 33. There will never lack a man of David or a Davidide to sit on the throne of Israel. We addressed this earlier when we looked at the non-temporal language in the previous section. But there was not a Davidide on the throne of Israel in 538 and never after that. But this language says there will never lack a man of David to sit on the throne of Israel. And finally, verse 18, adding to the fact that there will never, uh, that, that there will be an eternal Davidic king, there will be an eternal Levitical priest, that there will never lack a priest of Levi continually. The Hebrew here is literally all the days. Same phrase that was used in 3239, that uh, they would fear God always. A Levitical priest will continually minister on behalf of the people of God and David, God's servant. There are no Levitical priests functioning anywhere in the world today. It stopped dead in 70 AD. There are no priests in Judaism. That era is over. And even were it to be revived in a millennial period, when the priesthood of the millennium would once again return to offer sacrifices, do you see the disjunction there? A future age in which priests will offer sacrifices while Jesus is sitting down the street from that temple and watching them offer sacrifices when he made the perfect final sacrifice on the cross in Jerusalem? 
Do you see the disjunction there? Do you see the incongruity? Do you see the contradiction there? How does that compute? Christ, the once and for all final sacrifice for sin, and these premillennialists have got a millennial priesthood down the street offering sacrifices. Which they cannot offer continually according to this text because that millennium will end. And those sacrifices will cease. And those Levitical priesthoods will, will, will dry up and be destroyed or raptured as the case may be. In other words, they won't continue in that temporal arena to continually offer sacrifices for sin. No millennial theory can do justice to this language. You cannot project this language into a temporal arena of a thousand years or any year, a space in Jerusalem or any space on this, or you cannot do it and do justice to what the text is saying. You have to have an arena which is eternal as that Levitical priesthood is eternal. Now, where does the eternity feature live? It lives where God lives. It lives in heaven. It lives in the dimension which God himself inhabits. It lives in eternity because it is eternal reality. Well, if it's in eternity and I'm not there, how does it benefit me? It benefits you because it came into history in the fullness of time, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have become a participant in it by grace through faith. That's when it comes to benefit you, to possess you, to give you the joy of the grace of the kingdom of heaven. Well, let's then review these categories and try to tie up in a neat fashion what this progression involves. You're understanding that this language of the prophet moves through the progression of vocabulary and imagery which proceeds from temporal to non-temporal to eternal. This is how you properly interpret Old Testament prophecy. You move through these levels of vocabulary and imagery. First of all, the temporal language and fulfillment of 538 B.C. and after does not, in fact, cannot exhaust the meaning of Jeremiah 30 to 33. It cannot exhaust the depth and the riches of Jeremiah's eschatological language. Temporal language cannot touch the dimension of eternity in this language because it falls short. That includes the non-temporal language. Only the eternal prophetic language can fully satisfy the dimension and the arena of what Jeremiah is eschatologically projecting. The physical and the temporal carries with it an experience of more than the physical and temporal. 
Yes, we may say that the physical and temporal blessings are there. They came back to Jerusalem. They came back after 70 years of captivity. That was a wonderful temporal blessing. But there was more than that there. There was the common element that was offered to them, which is offered to all the people of God in every age. Namely, there was the grace, the forgiveness of sins, the covenant union with God, the relationship with the Lord as the I am, the Emmanuel presence. There was faith. There was freedom from bondage. All of that was there and all of it is still there. In that temporal and physical language, there is more than just what occurred in that time and space experience. And it is so for you. It is yours, both in the common and in the eschatological dimension. So that, number two, the temporal and physical benefits of the prophecy point to something better, to that new thing that we pointed out. That new thing which is something spiritual, something of the soul, something of the heart, something of the mind, something of the whole personality, something which is eternal, something which cannot be reversed, never to be reversed by human sin, by the curse on the created order, or by divine wrath and judgment. The temporal and the physical projects, prophesies something better. Better than Israel of the Old Testament. Better than the temple in Jerusalem. Better than the land of Canaan. Better than a David on the throne. Something better. You see, those physical and temporal elements and personality, they are themselves prophetic of something better. That's the reason God brought his son into the world. He was preparing the way for what is better by these personalities and events and cities and nations of the old era. But they were never to be absolutized as an end in themselves. And that's another error of Judaism, to absolutize the Old Testament as if it is the closed canon, the world of Judaism is the end of God's revelation. No, no. We are a living testimony as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that that was only the beginning. Jesus is the end. In Christ is the end. Third, the non-temporal language of Jeremiah's prophecy projects the fulfillment that is only possible in a person, in an arena, in an age which is not bound by time and space. This person, this arena, this age must be as unfettered by time and space as God himself is unfettered by time and space. This non-temporal language is the revelation of the person of God, the dwelling arena of God. The age which God himself brings. And all this requires a manifestation of that God person, that God arena, that divine age in time and space in the fullness of the times. In short, then, God must himself break into history. 
He must display his kingdom of heaven arena in history. He must reveal a provisional foretaste of the everlasting age which is wrapped up in himself. We must be able to see what it's like. It must be displayed before us. That's what Jesus' miracles do. That's what his parables teach. That's what his doctrine explains. He places it right out in the open on the table before us. All this must enter history in the incarnation of God the Son, in his bringing with him the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If I cast out Satan, you know that the kingdom of heaven has come into your midst. You know it. I've just shown you what it's like. There aren't any demons in heaven. I've just shown you what it's like up there. There is an everlasting life that is in him, in his kingdom, in his dwelling place, where time and space are no more, at least no more as we currently perceive them. Fourth, the eternity feature of the language of Jeremiah's prophecy, the everlasting aspect of the prophet's eschatology, not only draws us powerfully and wonderfully to our Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten and incarnate Son of God, the eternity feature of Jeremiah's eschatological language enables us to understand the profound drama of the spiritual appropriation of redeemed men, women, and children in every temporal era in history. In the Old Testament age, Heaven's blessings, God's blessings, eternity's blessings were revealed and available to the spirits or souls of those touched by grace through faith in a sweet union with the person and work of God who had condescended to take believers to himself in mighty acts of salvation like the Exodus, in daily blood offerings by which they drew near to him through priestly mediators, in a temple worship center where the glory of the Lord was revealed on earth as it is in heaven. The reality of God himself and his eternal heavenly abode touched their souls, transformed their hearts by heaven coming down, by God coming down and touching their spirits, their souls, their hearts, their lives, their personalities. The writer of the epistle to Hebrews chapter 11 describes the lives of many Old Testament saints whose spirits were touched by this eschatological faith so that even the Old Testament physical and temporal era was an era in which spiritual regeneration and faith were present. It was present for Enoch. It was present for Noah. It was present for Abraham. It was present for Sarah. It was present for Jacob. It was present for Moses. And so on we go through Hebrews 11 as a testimony to the fact that eternity came into time and changed the lives of these saints. They became possessors of the age to come even as they lived upon the earth. The temporal imagery drove them, drew them, showed them the eternal realities 
They were the possessors of the city whose builder and maker is God. Get that. They possessed the city whose builder and maker is God. 2,000 years before Christ, Abraham possessed that city out of which Christ came to redeem him. Marvelous grace. Marvelous grace. Even in the time of the Old Testament patriarchs. And now we are the heirs. We are the heirs of the spiritual riches of that Old Testament era. We are the blessed possessors of the non-temporal realities in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. We are those hidden with Christ in God in the heavenlies. Those heavenly places in which we are drenched with the glories of that arena. We are immersed in the glory of God. We are participants in the glory of an endless life. The eternity feature defines our spirit, our soul, our personality as we are touched by grace through faith in heaven's son, God's eternal son, the eternal heaven begotten son begotten in us by his resurrection from the dead. Life, life for the dead, his life, our life in him. This isn't theory. This is an abstraction. This is reality. This is what Christ came to do. This is what the Spirit has been abroad to do since his resurrection and ascension. This is what Christianity is really about. It is not about sitting in a chair on Sunday morning and listening. It is participating in this. It is being alive in it. Because you have it. It is what shapes your whole personality. He has loved us with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31, 3. Imagine, imagine the rich profundity of that statement. A love to us as everlasting as his own divine everlasting self. He can no more not love us than he can die and not love himself. Impossible for him to do. Impossible then for it to happen to us. He has wonderfully joined us to himself, his loving self, his everlasting, eternally loving self, his never-ending loving self, his never-ending self of never-ending love. That, that reality is ours in Christ Jesus. And that is the fullness of Jeremiah's eschatology. That is ours in heaven, the fullness of Jeremiah's eschatology. That is ours now and will be ours forever and ever and ever. Olam! To all eternity. He has invited us to a Jerusalem which can never be overthrown. A Jerusalem which can never be destroyed in fire and blood and wrath and judgment and ashes and in dust. This city of God, eternal in the heavens. This Jerusalem above, not below. This heavenly Jerusalem is the city of our true citizenship. It is that city where the Lamb of God dwells. 
It is in that city where the tree of life blooms. It is in that city where there is no more death, neither sorrow nor pain anymore. It is that eternal city of God in which we take up residence in glory, the glory of God and of the Lamb, basking in the radiance of their splendor, a splendor which the earthly Jerusalem could only dimly display because that earthly city was never intended. That earthly city was never intended to be the eternal home of the people of God. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, not now, not ever. The faithful of all ages belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. That is the projection of Jeremiah 31, verse 40. It is the realization of the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 22. He has made an everlasting covenant with us, Jeremiah 32, 40. Imagine, if you will, the Lord God of heaven's eternity deigns to draw us into an eternal covenant union with himself. He joins our life, our being, our person to the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And in uniting us unto himself, he seals his unbreakable bond with us in the blood of his dear son. He pledges to us through the blood of his eternal son never to divorce us never to separate us, never to abandon us, never to disunite us from his precious covenant. This covenant in which we confess and proclaim the Lord is our God and we are his people, a confession and proclamation, which is the very mirror image of God's own confession and proclamation to us. I am your God and you are my people. A covenant written upon our hearts, sealed in the blood of Christ. A covenant in which we know the Lord, know him as intimately and passionately as a husband knows his wife and a wife knows her husband. A covenant in which the Lord forgives our iniquity, covered over by the blood of his son, our Lord Jesus. A covenant in which he binds himself to remember our sins no more. Not ever. An eternal forgiveness of sins by an eternal forgiving Lord through the blood of a new and eternal covenant, covenant of the death and resurrection of the eternal covenant victim who is at once the eternal covenant vindication. We in him, him in us, reciprocal covenant relation forever. And finally, he has graciously given us as our everlasting king, the son of David, great David's greater son, a lion out of the tribe of Judah, whose throne of glory is spread abroad in that eternal city of God, the eschatological David enthroned in the eschatological Jerusalem with his reign of peace and life and abundance of joy forevermore. Never will we lack a son of David to sit on that throne, 
the Lord Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever lovingly, adoringly, bowing before him in thanksgiving, praise, and worship as we abase ourselves at his almighty and all-glorious feet, this King of kings, who has subdued all our enemies, rendered null the prince of darkness, shut out from our souls the terror of hell, canceled the very debt of our rebellion against him and his beloved kingdom. This King of kings, who has ushered us into a kingdom of light and life and glory forever. This king is our king, now and forevermore. An eternal king who is an eternal David with the scepter of an eternal kingdom in which we are loved and protected as his subjects forever. We are ruled in righteousness and peace. We are ruled in righteousness and shalom forever. We, we sit at the foot of his throne with no more enemies surrounding us, no more enemies besieging us, no more enemies holding us captive, no more enemies threatening us. No, not ever more forever this king, our Prince of eternal peace. Any questions, comments? The chapters are yours. They belong to you by way of projection, anticipation, and realization because heaven belongs to you. That's what Jeremiah is prophesying. Go in peace and let us pray. Father, we are not sufficient in ourselves to understand all the riches of your grace and revelation through your servant, Jeremiah. And yet, O oh Lord, as you give us ability, we relish the words, the images, the language, the precious reality of these passages because they are the testimony of your saving grace. They are the testimony of the reality of the eternal kingdom of God. They are testimony to the royal line of your son, son of David, they are the proclamation of a new Jerusalem. A Jerusalem where there is no enemy army besieging the wall. A Jerusalem in which there is no temple. A Jerusalem in which the Lamb is the temple and all the light of the glory of that city. And those, those who dwell in that city have come from Jew and Gentile, from every nation, tribe and tongue under heaven, 
from the four corners of the earth, they have come to that eternal city for an eternal life with an eternal God and Savior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We bless you for these privileges. We bless you for the revelation of these truths. We bless you for Jeremiah, your servant. We bless you most of all for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has translated us out of the temporal into the eternal so that we shall live and rejoice and sing and give thanks forever and ever and ever. Amen.